Welcome to The Pharmacists Are In, a podcast made for pharmacists by pharmacists, hosted by John Papasturjo. John is a frontline community pharmacist owner, assistant professor at the School of Pharmacy at both the University of Toronto and University of Waterloo, and an internationally recognized speaker, author, and researcher. Today's guest is Brian Gray, a fellow pharmacist, a recipient of the Ontario Pharmacist Association's 2016 Achievement and Specialized Practice Award, and a Canadian Foundation for Pharmacy board member. Join John and certified diabetes educator Brian as they discuss everything diabetes, from new diabetes technologies to patient counseling best practices. They'll keep you up to date with the latest in diabetes care, help you improve your diabetes resource toolkit, and give you tips on transforming diabetes management in your practice. So pull up a seat and let's get started. Welcome everyone. This is, uh, I guess, the first uh, segment of the Pharmacists Are In, our inaugural uh, podcast. I'm here today. My name is John Papasturgio. I'm a community pharmacist uh, working out of Toronto, uh, assistant professor at the University of Toronto. And uh, I'm here today with a colleague of mine, Brian Gray. We're going to be talking about diabetes and diabetes management. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. John, thank you. The pharmacists are definitely in. Yeah, Excited to little, be here. Yeah, we had a little uh, discussion about what the name uh, the show was going to be called. We were thinking the John and Brian show. We couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't agree if it was going to be the Brian or John, John or Brian show. So we went with the pharmacists is in. I think it's got a, it's got a pretty cool ring to it. Hopefully this is our first of many podcasts. Yeah, I feel like I didn't have a choice in the name, but it, it'll, it'll do well. I think it's, gonna, it's going to sit going well far. with everyone, yeah. So Brian, uh, how long have you been, tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been practicing? I know you're a go-getter, one of the innovative pharmacists here in Ontario. Yeah, well, my name's Brian. I'm a poet. Uh, yeah. I'm also a pharmacist. Graduated 2013 out of Dalhousie University. Came home to Thunder Bay, Ontario, where born and bred. Um, Worked in corporate for a little bit, had the opportunity to branch out independent pharmacy in 2014, and since then have been averaging about a pharmacy clinic site per year. We have our fifth one opening uh, later this summer. Um, from a practice standpoint, I've been doing a lot of different work in point of care testing. Uh, I'm a certified diabetes educator, so that's been a big part of my practice and it's done uh, really well for the sites. And uh, it's been really interesting working along other healthcare practitioners, physicians, chiropractors, dietitians, et cetera, and learning from them. And you touched on the CDU, so that's, when did you get that? That was something I know you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you need to complete minimum requirements to get that. Part of it is 800 practice hours. So I was logging them all the way from being a student through internship and through the early start of my career. Um, so I got that right in 2013, right around the time I was licensed. So it was, it was, part of my practice since day one. And you feel it's helped, it's added something to your practice? Do you, do, you, do you recommend it to the young pharmacists out there? Yeah, so back when I graduated, it was, it was certainly a recognized designation. And now with the continued evolution of practice in pharmacy in Ontario, we're required to have it for some of these clinical services. Uh, the new grads coming out, they're kind of, uh, part of their schooling allows them to have the ability to bill for these clinical services. So in hindsight, it was perfect that I had it. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely helped. I definitely have recommended it to a lot of my colleagues. And you've done some, uh, you were a Wellspring Award winner, I know that, so what did you do with that? <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've been very fortunate to be recognized for uh, some of my work, which has been accomplished by having a great team surrounding me. Um, the Wellspring Award is from the Canadian Foundation for Pharmacy. It's a 
funny award. It was, it's like a prospective award. It's recognizing what you want to do with the award. And in this case, uh, I was able to take my master's in business administration. Uh, and this was around the same time as I was starting community practice. So I was able to take my MBA part-time while also opening a new site, having a big focus on clinical services. Give a shout out to Dale there with uh, the CFP. And, and you know, that, that's <laughs> a, an important award because it really identifies, uh, you know, leaders early on in their career and helps them kind of develop those skills that will make them even more effective down the line. So it's great to see you win that. And I think you've already, you know, you already used a lot of those skills. I, I, you know, I've known you now for a few years and seen kind of what you've been able to do in practice. So kudos uh, to that. So when we think about diabetes, you know, as, as a chronic disease, what does it mean to your business? Like, what, you know, how, what, what percentage of the patients would you say out up there in Thunder Bay that you see that have diabetes and, and complications from diabetes? Yeah, you already commented it. It affects nearly everyone in our practice in some way, right? Either directly the patients that we serve or a family member will likely have someone who's been affected by diabetes. You know, we're talking strictly numbers. Uh, yeah, in, in Thunder Bay, the demographics, unfortunately, we have a high, high percentage. There's a lot of indigenous, indigenous uh, members in our community that have a higher rate of having diabetes. Um, so some of my practices, it's 30 to 50% of clients have early to well-developed diabetes that we need to try to support. And this is why we, we chose this really as kind of our first topics. When you talk about issues plaguing the healthcare system facing pharmacy. We're talking about huge numbers. In the next, you know, 10 years, this is going to cost the, the healthcare system about $20 billion. So pharmacists really, uh, they're going to have to take a more active role, like it or not. I mean, the primary care physicians aren't going to be able to manage all these patients. So have you done anything specific to kind of attract these patients to your business, uh, kind of differentiate yourself? Because I know Thunder Bay is a competitive area with respect to pharmacies, chains, but and many independents out there. Yeah, so Thunder Bay is an interesting city. So it's 100,000 people in Thunder Bay, give or take. And it's in northwestern Ontario, and it's somewhat of a geographical island. You don't have people coming in and out of the city as you do see in southern Ontario or some of the larger centers. So it's, it's a rather static uh, population. Uh, in terms of drawing people into the sites, early on I mentioned my interest was less so on the retail side, it was more at the clinical programming and services. So because diabetes affects so many clients in the community, building out point of care testing, consultations, um, helping people upgrade some of their equipment, should see some of the old stuff that they have packing, they bring in, it's older than I am in some cases. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's certainly helped grow my practice, but in turn give back to the community. Yeah, I mean, I see too, you know, downtown Toronto, same, same type of thing, you've got patients, especially our seniors, using old technologies. Really a huge opportunity for pharmacists there as well. What do you think of these new enhanced glucometers? Is it something you're pushing in your practice? And there's tons of them out there now. I think pretty much every glucometer is enhanced. I know many of, uh, 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 of our pharmacies, many of our pharmacists aren't even aware of the technology that they have available at their fingertips. We, they, essentially these companies have built an e-health platform for us and we're not using it. And it's actually been done for free. Is, is it anything you've incorporated into your practice at all yet? It's so neat looking at the history of these devices. Uh, back in the day, it was a means to get a blood sample and let's try to figure out what someone's glucose was, right? The machines weren't very accurate. They bled you dry. 
they took a lot of blood to run, and uh, they put holes in your fingers, right? You see some patients come in, it looks like their fingers look like kiwi stones. They, they have little holes and scars in them because they were using old technology. Um, it's been interesting seeing the progression, and I've only been practicing for you know, five, six years now, uh, plus my student time, and you saw this progression from devices being able to start to predict trends, start to connect to a computer so you could, instead of looking on this tiny one inch by one inch screen, you could actually start to look at stuff on a computer, print reports off ahead of time. But in the last year or two in Canada, you mentioned about these e-platforms, the capabilities of these is absolutely astounding. There is so much potential to help patients with these and uh, connect with the prescribers with these different glucometers. Um, I think I think the unfamiliarity and just the newness of this technology, it, it is still overwhelming for pharmacists. And uh, with the number of changes we're dealing with in our profession, it's hard to get around to being fully familiar with these different devices. Uh, and that's where having, if your site is more focused on diabetes, this becomes an integral part of it. Yeah, I know. It's, you know, I, I challenge my pharmacist with this. A lot of different meters out there. They all have, you know, uh, different apps associated with their meters now. It's kind of familiarizing yourself with all of them sometimes can be a challenge, deciding which ones you're going to use. There's different pros and cons to the meters. The reality is, before you do anything as a pharmacist, you got to download some of these apps and try them yourself. I think that's, uh, that's key because it's going to be very, very difficult for you to kind of educate a patient if you've never used the app on your own. But what I think is some of you know, the huge benefits, I mean, with respect to time savings, I mean, it's a little bit of an investment on time on the top end where you're like kind of training the patient, downloading the app, figuring it out. But on the back side, you get a huge savings because you're able to use these platforms, use the information that's there, engage the patients to get more involved in their, in their diabetes. And that's where I think we've got an opportunity for pharmacists. You know, message, take home message here is if you're listening, go home, download some of these apps and see how they're used because you'll see the inherent benefits almost right away and your patients will uh, see the benefits as well. How do you decide which one to use? Are you using them all? Do you have a favorite? Uh, put you on the spot a little. I've done a lot of work with the, uh, the Essentia platform and having a good client experience is really important too. Stuff like logging into these devices and user codes and getting stuff signed up can be a little bit challenging, but uh, going ahead, um, that's for me that, yeah. you know, you talked about it, the user experience. It's the easiest one to use, I think, in my opinion, just simply because it's, uh, you know, the interface is quite patient friendly. We got a lot of type 2 diabetics that are using this device. Many of them are seniors. I find it's, it's really simple to use. There are benefits to all of them, but for me, yeah, I agree. I think uh, uh, the patient experience there is uh, really great. And I think, you know, uh, it just takes that time, that little bit of time to familiarize yourself and promote it uh, uh, to your patients. You talked about some of the early studies there, and I think what they showed is not only, uh, you know, uh, did the physicians and the pharmacists do better uh, when answering questions that they were given when they were using these platforms, but the patients themselves also did better. And to me, that was a big positive sign, because if we're going to manage you know, this huge 33% increase in these patients that we're going to see over the next 10 years, you've got to get them more engaged in, uh, in their own health. And I think that's a, that's a really cool thing. You talked a little bit of point-of-care testing, too. Do you do, you do any of that? I know it's something that pharmacies are getting more and more involved in uh, uh, lately to try to kind of differentiate their practice and do a little bit better. 
Yeah, so point of care testing covers a huge number of areas, right? Um, so I've ha I have experience working with the cholesterol devices. So doing point of care testing, you get lipid panel back. It's nice is there's a lot of different lipid panels that you can use to input a Framingham risk score and really give someone a, a risk estimation of their chance of developing heart disease. That plays a big role into diabetes because that's one of the major risk factors of someone with diabetes. Um, point of care for A1C, that's been around for quite a while now. Um, having that available in the pharmacy is absolutely amazing. You think how many prescriptions for metformin or insulin or any diabetes medication have you as a pharmacist signed off on? And when you sign, you're saying this is therapeutically appropriate. What are their numbers? Are they on the right dose of insulin? Are they on the right dose of metformin? So A1C has been another great uh, point of care test available uh, in this area. How about that? I know you've done some work because I've seen some of the pictures with uh, monofilament foot testing. How did you get into that? To me, that was always a... My, some of my students have kind of dabbled in it. I thought that was going to be a tough sell, but it worked out being pretty good. Yeah, when, uh, when I first got into pharmacy, you say, you know, I like healthcare, but I don't want to be doing surgery and dealing with blood. And, you know, our, our profession started to go that way with immunizations and now with point of care testing. So it used to be a very hands-off type of practice. And I think the profession is really starting to connect somewhat physically with our patients now. And you think about someone's feet. How often in your practice do you look at someone's feet? It usually gets missed. So when I was taking my CDE education and looking through the guidelines, I got, that's a major part. Having people look at their feet as a pharmacist, you need to encourage it. You need to be able to take a look yourself. And most, and most people at the counter, um, just popped off, too excited here. <laughs> I moved too much, yeah. <laughs> Most clients, <clears throat> so most clients, when they come to the pharmacy counter, you literally only see them from the waist up. Our chance to look at their feet and discuss their foot health with them, it's usually not a common occurrence in pharmacy. So putting that all together, I uh, found that there's all the, a, a number of different mo um, devices to check for neuropathy with the feet. There's some tuning forks that seemed a little complicated, so I looked at the monofilaments. They were affordable, easy to do, and there's some easy testing that can be done. Um, and some of the results coming out of that have been have been very helpful for the practice. I know, you know, and I remember you you telling me you should try this. I had a couple of my students kind of uh, put together a clinic, and I thought no one's going to show up for this thing. And we had like 35 patients at the first clinic, and it really was. I discovered later that sh to go see a chiropodist is not covered in Ontario, right? So mm -hmm. many of our patients with diabetes, they've got these underlying foot problems. They have no one looking at their feet. The family docs are too busy. They can't go in to get this extra care, and they're, they don't want to pay out of pocket. So, I mean, it was a simple, simple fit for us, and it seemed to work well, and it's something we continue to offer. So, yeah, no, that was, uh, I think, uh, a great idea. And anyone out there considering putting in place a simple clinic, cheap, you know, not a huge capital investment, that's probably uh, the way to go. But, you know, one of the other things, I mean, that we're challenged with in practice now, and I've done some work in this area as well, is, We've got this huge population of type 2 diabetics. I, I mean, I'm in Greek town in the dam <laughs> for it. These guys are eating feta cheese. They're, you know, uh, souvlaki. And um, many of them have diabetes. Senior ethnic population, they refuse to go on insulin. They're on that four or five drug cocktail of oral medications, 
having no impact anymore on their A1C, suffering from psychological insulin resistance. Back in the day, if you were, you know, if, hey, you told a Greek guy he's going on insulin, that's the end of the road for them. Next stop's the hospital and I'm going to die. So we spent a lot of time kind of try to motivate these patients to say, listen, times have changed. We got to get you on insulin as quick and po as possible. What are some of those strategies that you found have helped given your population out there in Thunder Bay as well? Yeah, John, what you described is really connecting with your clients in your community, right? You're, you're a Greek guy, you mm -hmm. practice in Greek town in Toronto. In, in Thunder Bay, we have some of those trends as well. We have one of the largest Finn populations outside of Finland. Right. In Thunder Bay, saunas are a hot commodity. I learned that when I Literally. came up there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you mentioned about some of the myths around insulin. Uh, it, it's almost a little bit worse in northern communities. Um, the indigenous population, because they have such high prevalence, it's almost a step worse is if you're prescribed insulin, it means in the next five years, their, their thinking is in the next five years, you're gonna lose a limb. Yep. They, it's, it's almost a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And further to that, some of their myths are, they're thinking that there's conspiracies or that you know possibly that this is from some other group that's implementing this. And I'm not trying to speak harshly of the community, but it comes down to health literacy. Mm -hmm. um, so as a pharmacist, you're trying to recommend a, a viable therapeutic option for these people. And you're having to deal with a lot of these myths before you can even start to talk about the options that are available to them. So absolutely, you gotta connect with your, your community. And you know what I found? It's not always just the uh, the patients. It's, you know, there's some psychological insulin resistance with the, you know, the healthcare providers as well. You think about, you know, putting someone, transitioning someone to insulin, more training, more time required. There's this fear of hypoglycemia as well, you know. And I think, you know, as a profession, we got to do more. We have things in Ontario like the Farm Opinion Program, similar programs across the country. How do we capitalize on these things to just kind of push push this message forward? Let's get these patients on insulin faster. And there's a lot of data to suggest now that we're being uh, really reactive when it comes to diabetes. What do you think about that? Yeah, you, you mentioned about our health practitioners being a part of this and some of the um, perpetual information that's being shared forward. You, uh, you look at what used to be involved with giving insulin. You used to have to draw it out of a vial, out of a needle. People don't like needles. And then you ask every day or multiple times a day, you'd be putting that inside your body. You know, so you look at some of the, the old dated technology involved with the administration of insulin versus taking a pill like metformin or some of the other basic medications that have been available, right? There's still a bit of that hanging over the system today. What's great now is that there are so many solutions available um, and devices that have made things easier. You know, the needles are smaller. Uh, insulin has advanced quite, quite well. There's long acting. There's ones that you don't even have to take every day. So you see advancements in that area. This has started to break down some of these barriers. But if we don't talk to our patients about these options, they're still gonna they're still gonna be afraid of what could be a very good option for their for their therapeutics. Yeah. No, I agree for sure. You know, you touched on a couple of things here that I want. You know, this is our first episode, first podcast here, first segment, and I want to. I think we should talk about some of those basic things. You know, when talking about diabetes, everyone tends to forget things like injection technique needle selection these are like some of the real basics and i've you know i do a radio show here in toronto as well and i hear you know callers calling in not knowing they've got to you know get new lancets or not knowing that they have to rotate you know their site uh sites of injection so you know you're talking to first year pharmacy students say here for an example 
what are those key therapeutic kind of pearls that you'd give them about some of the, you know, diabetes 101 basics with respect to technique, what would you say? Right, so with insulin technique, this almost kind of comes back to my comments about looking at patients' feet. Do we ever talk to them about how they're administering their insulin? Myself as a student, I asked a patient if I could talk to them about where they administer their insulin. Patient pulled up their shirt and they had lipodystrophy. They had a big, fat, firm roll right across the top of their belly button because they'd been administering their insulin for years on years in the exact same spot and no one thought to take a look and this is one of those common things that we just assume patients know. That is very difficult to reverse, trying to, trying to remove those lipodystrophies. So talking about site rotation is a no-brainer. It should be very common. It should be part of your regular counseling with insulin. Um, looking at dispensing practices, something as simple as, you mentioned about lancets, every time someone's filling a box of test strips, should be filling a box of lancets, right? One test strip, one lancet. A lot of patients try to economize and save by not reusing lance, uh, by reusing lancets. Uh, I found some really good pictures online in some of my um, diabetes needle supplies. They have some good pictures of the microscopic tips on the lancets. And you look at it after one use, A, you lose uh, silicone lubricant. That's used in a lot of needle tips or other different lubricant types. And then the second thing is that needle starts to become jagged and shard. Over time, it starts to get more and more dull, and that can start to damage the fingertips. So mm -hmm. there's a second little tip that we can look at is every time you fill a box of test strips, look at some lancets. How about uh, needle side? What's the scoop? Needle, needle size. Tell me what the scoop is there. You know, I mean... We've seen this argument change over the years. We see the technology with respect to needles change. What do you tell your patients if they ask you? Uh, do we go for long needles anymore? Do we not? Remember, this is, uh, you know, Pharmacy 101. <laughs> <laughs> pharmacy 101, the yeah. John O'Brien show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, Karen, you still see on the shelves, you still see some of those really long needle lengths. And uh, the evidence shows we only need to get just into the subcutaneous tissue layer. Those long needle tips, we actually run the risk of hitting a muscle layer, and that completely throws off the kinetics of the insulin, whether using short or long-acting insulin. So there's, there's really no solid case for why we should be using the longer uh, insulin needles. It's a great opportunity to talk to clients and engage them about their technology that they're using. And then there's also the ability to look at some of the billable services about recommending changes in their therapy, which could involve the, the devices. So going with the shorter needle lengths is certainly important. And we don't need the big fat gauges either. You know, the 32 gauge four millimeter, that's perfect for nearly 95% of our clientele. I, I really can't think of a good reason why we need to use the longer ones. Oh, that's good advice. And I think uh, something all, all new pharmacists should be, should be aware of. You know, changing gears a little bit. So, I mean, pharmacy is also a business. Uh, you know, April 1st, we had pan-Canadian drug reform. We've been hit with reform in Ontario and across the country, I think, uh, a few times in my career now. And we're seeing the pressures of generic deflation and everything else. And as we, as a profession, kind of try to reinvent ourselves, look at other areas, you know, uh, to enhance our practice, I think diabetes is definitely, uh, you know, an opportunity. So when you have that, you know, your first presented kind of walk me through that, you know, I've got this new patient, he's walks into my pharmacy, he's newly diagnosed, type 2 diabetic, you know, what goes through your mind with respect to, hey, what are the opportunities? And not only from the business perspective, but obviously we're going to do the right thing for the patient. But, the, uh, you know, 
take us through the business side of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the kind word I like to use is sustainable practice. It needs to be sustainable, right? Hospital sustainable, community practice, yes, it's private, needs to be sustainable as well. Um, that doesn't mean we can't provide excellent care for our patients. Good health care, good business starts with good health care. So when we're looking at, when I've been looking at rolling out programs in my sites, say, well, how big's our market? How many people can we help with this program? Let's pick something random like ABO blood type testing. Probably not a big market, really not going to have a big impact. Something like diabetes, we already talked about the statistics, affects a lot of patients. So for me, I can probably help a lot of people. You mentioned about the April 1st Pan-Canadian changes that came up. I feel we could have like 10 podcasts on all those changes that have come out. But what is important about that is we can't just focus on dispensing and getting pills and devices out as fast as we can. We need to engage with our clients, right? So with that in mind, that comes back to this whole discussion about talking to them about their devices, looking at doing consultations with them, stuff like point of care testing and medication reviews. These all become important. Um, the devices, when, we're, when patients are testing and we're trying to do consultations, you think if we can get our patients with some new technology, instead of sitting there looking through a logbook, you know, you've, John, I, I know you've seen those logbooks come in. They have coffee stains, they have blood stains, they're stuck together sometimes. Feta cheese stains. Feta cheese. Yeah, yeah pancakes. Fe and yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and the other thing is they lie. The patients lie on them. Those are, well, you know, they're not accurate. <laughs> they only write down their good results. That's sometimes. right. Yeah. But, but what I'm getting at is for me to perform an effective consultation and I'm looking through this crusty dusty logbook, I am very limited in my ability to pick up trends to notice what's good, what's bad. I'm, I'm just kind of looking at a few numbers and trying to make some guesses. Implementing this technology, yes, it seems like, oh, it's a new thing to do. It takes a lot of time. But investing that time up front with this technology ends up saving time down the line with the reporting abilities and some of the technology features that we can bring into play here. How about immunization? I mean, that for me, when I think of a patient with diabetes, that's one of the first things that comes to mind now, too. You know, um, flu, pneumococcal vaccine, shingles. I mean, these are all, you know, vaccines would be, we should be considering. Are you guys doing any of that out in your practice? or? Yeah, so you, you look into the guidelines. Um, there's an actual a whole dedicated section on vaccination for clients with diabetes. And statistically speaking, clients with diabetes have a higher prevalence of hepatitis B and pneumococcal disease. Not exactly sure why, you know, why that correlation is there. But the point is, is as we're engaging with our clients over the year, I know it's, you know, right now today it's, it's spring, but we're going to be rolling into summer and fall soon. Flu season is going to come up. We can talk to our clients with diabetes more than just about the flu shot. Have you had your pneumococcal? Uh, over 65 are looking at one booster. Uh, and then your hepatitis B as well. Uh, a lot of clients don't even know their vaccination status there. If you look at your province of practice, many provinces pay for uh, vaccinations. Or if you're looking at Ontario, each of those vaccinations has a DIN. We can recommend those as a pharmaceutical opinion. Back to your point about sustainability, I can recommend these products, I can dispense them, I can administer them to my patient, and I'm doing good for the patient and also running a sustainable practice. Yeah, that's great. And if you think we're, you know, that, that's all happened within the last five or six years. I mean, the, the profession has uh, evolved uh, so, so quickly. I guess what the one area we haven't talked about, and we've touched on a lot of different things, is 
you know, lifestyle uh, counseling, motivational counseling around weight management. I mean, this is an important, probably one of the most important parts of managing our patients with diabetes. And I know, you know, many pharmacists aren't cover, uh, comfortable with that. They're used to kind of the drugs and counseling on the drugs, but this is a huge part of diabetes. Are you guys, you know, what are your tips there? Are you guys doing it in practice? Yeah, from, from strictly an evidence standpoint, we know that lifestyle intervention is more effective than any pills or insulin or any devices or anything we can give out of the pharmacy. But the reality is uh, change is tough. From a, from a practical standpoint, uh, it, it needs to be part of your counseling with clients. But I think it's finding a starting point can be really tough. You know, we joked about Greek Town and I joked mm -hmm. about Thunder Bay. Um, sometimes the counseling needs to start with, instead of drinking pop, Maybe we need to look at having diet pop. Sometimes it needs to be as basic as that based on your clientele coming in, right? And, and maybe education around at that level. The idea of walking, consume sugars, insulin helps deliver sugars to your muscles. Some of those really basic physiological um, systems that happen in your body, some people don't have that knowledge. So you really got to connect with your client and figure out what level of understanding are they at are they someone advanced that we can talk about carb counting or you know, different insulin regimens, or are we going to be talking about Coke and Diet Coke with these clients? Yeah, that's great. You know, uh, you know when, as we were talking, you know, moving from topic to topic, uh, you know, follow-up med checks and follow-up in general uh, with our patients is we, it's underutilized in Ontario. We know that. We know that from the open data. We know that from, uh, from uh, kind of practice as well. You've done a lot of work with the appointment-based model. I know it's something that uh, is near and dear to your heart. You've spoke about it at conferences. I've heard it. Uh, give us a quick summary because I think that's really, really applicable to diabetes. Yeah, th this affects every area of pharmacy, and it's, it's certainly a, an area of interest right now. So medication synchronization is simply the ability of getting all the meds due on the same time. Great, there's a lot of practical and financial benefits to having everything synchronized, decreased delivery costs, decreased parking costs. The pharmacist is more effective getting to look at everything all at once. So once a patient's file is synchronized and we figure out a way to notify them that they're, you know, they're synchronized and if it's a 30-day fill at day 30, they need their meds picked up. Well, we now know when they're coming in to the pharmacy. We can predict that. And if they don't have time that day, we know that they're coming back in 30 days or 90 days or whatever cycle we've synchronized to. That's really the next step, which is the appointment-based model. Now that you have an appointment-based model regimen set up, what do you do at that time and that predictability? You could sit the client down and review their medications. Flu season, you could administer flu shots. Um, and depending on how advanced your practice is, you could start to look at, let's book an appointment to update your diabetes equipment. Let's take a look at your feet. Let's get you immunized. So I think that's the progression of MedSync to the appointment-based model. And it, it applies to diabetes, it could apply to bone density, to pain, really every different therapeutic area. And I think, you know, this is the way pharmacists have to start thinking. I mean, you know, our, our dispensing uh, model is changing quickly. We're getting centralization of services, uh, you know, filling those scripts is going to become a commodity. How do we manage all these, these, these other issues that our patients are facing? And I think you've really, you know, set the stage up there uh, in Thunder Bay. It's, uh, you know, great to have you come in and talk about everything you've done. So if you were, you know, you know, you had two or three kind of real pearls that you wanted to pass on to, the, you know, the new grads out there, 
anyone that's thinking about you know changing the way they practice because i know since april 1st it's a lot of pharmacists a lot of traditional pharmacies are thinking how could i do more how do i differentiate myself what would you say to them i think it's a good way to end yeah i think first and foremost is you need to do something other than dispensing it could be retail focused it could be cosmetic it could be aesthetics could be point of care testing clinical services it needs to be something other than dispensing because as far as I can see, and I don't have a crystal ball, the dispensing model is not going to have a drastic turnaround. It's not going to rapidly increase anytime soon. In fact, it's going to maintain this current course, which has been reductions, used to be every couple of years, then is annual. Now we're looking at cuts to pharmacy, it seems almost quarterly and monthly. So you need to do something other than simply dispensing the pharmacy. Yeah, I know, and I think... That's my first and foremost biggest tip. It's the same message I try to give, and I think, you know, those pharmacies that ask, well, you know, what should I do? It's always start small. You're not going to change your practice overnight. You're not going to get a wave of patients coming in to get these services if they're not used to getting them at your pharmacy. I know in my practice it took us probably five years to really build a robust kind of professional service offering. Now we offer, you know, a, a, a gamut of different kind of services, but... Pick an easy one. You mentioned, you know, f you know, uh, monofilament foot testing or something like A1C screening. Pick those really, really kind of low-hanging fruit that'll draw patients in. It'll get your pharmacies, uh, pharmacists kind of used to it. On the flip side, you gotta make an investment as a, a pharmacy owner, and I know you've done that. Invest in your staff. I mean, you can't expect to cut and offer these services. Yeah, any, any, you know, comment there? Yeah, I, I think. Taking that plunge, so to speak, is certainly necessary. And, and if it's buying a few point-of-care devices or equipment for a couple hundred dollars, you know, do a couple calculations in the back of a napkin. It, it should work out. Um, but starting out yourself personally doing it, and it's going to be messy, it's going to be slow, you're going to feel that your consultations aren't exactly where you want, but every time you do one, it gets a little faster. And then you'll start to look at efficiencies, like, well, maybe a registered pharmacy technician could help me with some of this point-of-care testing or device education, right? We have them on staff. Well, why don't we stack a clinic day and we can start to use those team members? Can we have a pharmacy assistant gather some of our health history? Not complete the whole service, but just chew off some of the part of it to speed us up, right? So some of those little efficiencies over time, like you said, you start small and you build up and you can start to expand your services from there. Yeah, and I, it's such an exciting time. I mean, we face with, uh, you know, all this kind of negativity sometimes. We forget about all the, you know, the privileges we've been given as pharmacists. So really trying to capitalize on that. You know, Brian, I wanted to thank you for coming in. Uh, you know, you really have been a trendsetter over the, you know, the last few years. It's great to hear about kind of your practice in Thunder Bay. I, I know you're down uh, now in Toronto on your way to the OPA conference, so I'm sure you'll be able to spread the word there a little <laughs> bit. Hopefully we have more uh, uh, segments of our new podcast uh, uh, made available uh, soon. So uh, you guys will be able to hear a little bit more from your uh, pharmacists that are in. And, uh, you know, really one thing we haven't talked is leveraging those vendor partners, eh? because they're there to help as well. And, uh, you know, they help with things like this, but they also help, uh, uh, you know, change your practice and they're willing to make some investments in your pharmacy also. Absolutely. I, I think those relationships are certainly very important with, with your practice as you go ahead. 
And uh, yeah, o OPA conference is coming up. Very excited to be there. Yeah, I'm sure you'll have a good Deerhurst. time. Deerhurst. Deerhurst <laughs> this year. Hopefully we get a good turnout out there. And, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, next year it's in Toronto, so I'm sure we'll get a, an even better one. But uh, no, it's always great to have you in, and uh, uh, I'm sure we'll have you on some future segments talking about some of the other cool stuff you're doing out there in Thunder Bay. Thank you, John. As always, the pharmacist is in. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the number one selling pen needle in Canada, the BD Nano 4mm Pen Needles. Visit www bd.com for more details. This podcast is also brought to you by the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter and Contour Diabetes App from Essentia Diabetes Care. Visit www.contournextone.ca for more information.